I pray for us? Father, I thank you for Redeemer Church. I thank you for each person you've brought in our, into our midst. I pray that you would edify them now with your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll grab a copy of God's Word and let's go to Hebrews chapter 8 this week. Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to do the whole, whole chapter. And uh, as you're finding uh, that, uh, many of you know that I enjoy uh, working with wood. Um, as God's image bearer, I find it really satisfying to design and, and create various projects, and, and that increased all the more when I inherited some tools from uh, my OPA a few years back. However, I've, uh, I've recently run into a problem. Um, parts for many of, uh, of, of these tools that I inherited, you, you can't find them anymore. Uh, more than once, you know, customer service reps have told me something like, I'm sorry, Mr. Rogers, we no longer manufacture these parts. They've become obsolete, discontinued. We've replaced it with a better tool, though, if I can interest you in that. You know how it goes. But I'm attached to the old tools, I, I think to myself. Even if there's something better out there, I want the old ones to work. But some of them never will. Time and, and better engineering have made them obsolete. In our passage today, some Jewish Christians want their old ways in Judaism to still work. They're, they're attaching themselves once again to the old priesthood and the old sacrifices and the old covenant. But that's a huge problem because something far greater discontinued those things. Someone far greater. Jesus Christ, he even, he even made those things, the text will tell us today, obsolete. To give yourself to a priesthood that's now obsolete and to ignore the priest of all priests who fulfills everything the old forms pointing to. Well, that was to forfeit your soul. Now, my earlier woodworking analogy does break down, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it's not hard to imagine that 10 years from now, a new line of tools will make today's tools obsolete. And on and on it, it goes. The contrast that we encounter today is much stronger. The person and work of, of Jesus Christ doesn't simply begin a better priesthood, a, a better covenant to later be surpassed by another and then another. The covenant he establishes will be surpassed by no other. Not only is it better, not only does it achieve all that the old could not achieve, Jesus' covenant is final and forever. Either you relate to God through Jesus, or you have no fellowship with God at all. But why, why is that, though? Uh, why must we relate to God through Jesus and Jesus alone? Well, to begin, He alone sat down at the right hand of majesty. That's the, the first thing we see in chapter 8. He alone sat down at the right hand of the majesty. 
Notice the development in verse 1. Now, the point in what we're saying is this. Isn't that helpful? Three and a half chapters have gone by of him explaining Jesus' superior priesthood. He pauses for just a minute to let us come up for air, and, and he highlights the main point. Just listen to it. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Now, we first saw this in chapter 1, verse 3, if you turn back there, when it says that after making purification for sins, Jesus, he, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After completing his work on earth, after making purification for, those, for our sins at the cross, God raised up Jesus and then he enthroned him in the place of absolute honor. Now we might ask, wait a second, I, I thought we were talking about priests, right? Don't priests make sacrifices? What's this business here about God's throne? What does it have to do with, with priests? Well, part of that answer has to do with the sort of priest Jesus is, right? He, he is a priest king, uh, he is priest and king in, in one person. That's what chapter 7 helped explain. Another part, though, has to do with the way God revealed himself to Israel. Right? He, he was the God who was enthroned above the, the cherubim. The cherubim were these angelic figures who spread their wings over the mercy seat in the most holy place. In other words, the temple where the priests served was also the place where God manifested his rule. So to see, to see Jesus now enthroned at the right hand of the majesty in heaven is also to see the God who makes provision for our sins. There's a sense of finality to it as well here. The, the son doesn't stand. Notice that he sat down past tense. In chapter 10, verse 12, Hebrews will contrast Jesus sitting uh, over against the priests who still stand, right? They, they have to stand daily to make their sacrifices. But Jesus, on the other hand, he sat down. Why? Because another sacrifice isn't needed. His death was sufficient. Nothing more needs to be added to it. All of our sins are taken away, and so he sits at the right hand of the majesty. But to that, he also adds a bit more in our text. Jesus also obtained a more excellent ministry. That's the, the second thing we see here. Jesus also obtained a more excellent ministry. Look at verse 2. It says that he is now a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old. And we'll stop there for uh, a moment. 
In verse 2 and then in verse 6, you, you find this idea of Jesus being a minister or obtaining a more excellent ministry. And that, that language normally applied to the Levites in the Old Covenant. Right? God set apart the Levites to fulfill certain duties or ministries related to the sacrifices. But all these duties happened in the tent of meeting or, or the tabernacle. God designated this special tent as a, as a meeting place, the place where He revealed His glory and, and where He manifested His presence with His people. Now, He wasn't limited to, to that tent, but He chose to reveal His glory there. God designed it. Nevertheless, it was the people who built it. You, human hands erected. We get these long descriptions of people working together to sew the curtains and, and, and whatnot and, and make the fashion of poles and various uh, instruments used in the tabernacle. Human hands created it and set it up and then tore it down and then moved it around in, in the wilderness. And what's important to notice though, is, is, is that, that the tent and, and the ministry of the priests that went with it were always pointing to something greater, right? When it says in verse 5, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. He's, he's quoting from Exodus 25, verse 40. He's suggesting that right from the start, Moses was to build an earthly tent, but that earthly tent was but a pattern, literally a type. Right? A, a picture. It pointed to something greater. The tabernacle and priests, it says, served a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things. You know, growing up, I, I loved, I loved the looks of a 68 Chevy Camaro. Um, it was my favorite Hot Wheel growing up. Later on, when I could actually handle super glue without welding my fingers together, you know, I, I, I built a scale model of, of a 68 Camaro with all the little parts of gorgeous midnight blue. But it wasn't the real deal. Oh, if only it was. It, was only, it wasn't the real deal, right? It was just a pointer to something greater. Well, it's the same with the tabernacle. It, it, it pointed beyond itself to, to God's heavenly dwelling and, and what was required for God and man to be reconciled. Meaning the old priestly order was never meant to be permanent. God himself always meant for it to be surpassed in Jesus. Like the old priests, we see here that Jesus offered a sacrifice too. But as chapter 7, verse 27 already said, Jesus' sacrifice was of a better kind. Right? He, he didn't come to bring an animal. He offered up himself. He doesn't need to keep offering sacrifices daily. He made his sacrifice once and for all. And that means Jesus doesn't have an earthly ministry anymore. Right? It isn't needed. His sacrifice was once for all. But he does have a ministry in heaven, which the text calls the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The true tent. He doesn't mean true as, a, as opposed to like a fake one. I mean, the, the, the thing in the wilderness was real. <laughs> the temple was real, right? He doesn't mean true as opposed to fake, but, but true in the sense of 
bringing those previous copies to their fulfillment, okay? Hebrews 9 to 10 will speak of Jesus entering through the greater and more perfect tent, one that's not made with hands, one that's not of this world, he says. He passed through those heavenly places to enter beyond the curtain into the very presence of God. He, he really opened the way for us. The old priestly order and the old tent could only picture it, but Jesus makes it a reality for us. His sacrifice doesn't just anticipate an atonement. It is the atonement that brings us to God. And this makes his ministry way more excellent. But something else that makes his ministry more excellent is this. Jesus mediates a better covenant. Jesus mediates a better covenant. This is the the third and, and final point here in explaining this passage. Jesus mediates a better covenant. Verse 6 and following finishes like this. Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and and this is from Jeremiah 31, uh, one of the longest uh, quotations from the Old Testament in the New Testament here. Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they didn't continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, covenant is a crucial theme in Scripture. You won't understand your Bible unless you pay attention to God's covenant with His people. They provide the key, these covenants provide the key framework to understand, uh, uh, understand how God relates to us and how we relate to God and to one another. Now, broadly speaking, a covenant is a formal declaration of the terms of a relationship between two or more parties. I'm going to say that again, and I took that from Wes, Pastor Wes's uh, really helpful definition here. Uh, a covenant is a formal declaration of the terms of a relationship between two or more parties, okay? So when a husband uh, marries his wife, not only is the nature of that relationship described, they, they then formalize it, right? The, both say their vows, both seal it with an oath of commitment to one another. They both say, I do, right? Sometimes the Bible uses marriage to illustrate God's covenant resolve to love and cherish his people. But there's certainly more involved in a covenant when it comes to God relating to man, okay? Just think about the covenants that God made with man in in the Scripture. The big big ones, Adam, 
makes a covenant with Adam. He makes a covenant with Noah. He makes a covenant with Abraham and his seed. Then he makes a covenant with, with Moses and then David. And then we have the new covenant uh, in, in Christ. Now, now, what stands out in all of these covenants is that God initiates them. Right? He is the superior uh, and, and he draws near to man, and then he sets the terms for how the people must relate to them and, and how we, how, how, how the people, uh, um, how he will then also relate to the people. Well, within Hebrews 8, we find two covenants being compared. Uh, it's, we, we see the old covenant. Uh, the old covenant in view is the law of Moses, the, the covenant that God made uh, with the people at Sinai. is what it, verse 9 implies, but the day when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Uh, and then the, we have the better covenant, on the other hand, th- that's in view. The, the, the new covenant, verse 8 calls it. So uh, it's, it, this is the covenant that's inaugurated by the work of Jesus. In both covenants, we see that God takes the initiative, right? God saved them from Egypt, and God met with Moses to deliver the law. And then likewise, God would be the great initiator of the new covenant. Did did you hear uh, the words earlier? I will establish, and I will make, and I will write, and I will show mercy. You see, God sets the term, and God takes the initiative uh, in in grace, so so never should we get the idea that the old covenant was bad and or or unholy, uh, while the new the new is really good and holy. God initiated them both, right? And we can even say that both result were the result of God's grace toward His people, right? Even the old covenant revealed God's character and it mitigated evil and it, and it set Israel apart for Himself in in relationship. Nevertheless, the Old Covenant had faults of its own. As he said in in chapter 7, verse 19, uh, the law made nothing perfect. Right? Everything necessary to make you whole before God's presence, the the law could never do it. That, That wasn't God's design for it. Uh, there was also no forgiveness of sins un- under the law. L- chapter 10, verse 4 says that it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The law could expose sin. The law could even picture what was necessary to take away our sins. But it could never actually forgive them. And yes, that means that faithful men and women in the Old Testament, so people like Joshua and people like Caleb uh, and and David and and the remnant uh, in Israel who never bowed their knee to Baal. Even those, none of them found forgiveness in the law. They found forgiveness in what the law was pointing them to in Christ. The law also couldn't change the heart. It told the people what to do. But as a bare letter, as something written externally on on stone tablets, it couldn't make the people obedient from the heart. That's why verse 8 says, God found fault with them, with with the people, right? That's why verse 9 says, the people didn't continue in my covenant. 
The problem wasn't the letter. It was the people right from the start. They, they wouldn't obey. And then over and over and over again, the people get the law. They agree to keep it. And then they don't. What does that history, what is that history of Israel supposed to teach us? The law lacks the power to save. It only has the power to condemn. Moreover, the law wasn't permanent. It was only provisional. Verse 13 says, And speaking of a new covenant, he that is God makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So he's explaining what's implied in the prophecy of Jeremiah itself. The Old Testament itself is saying this. That just by speaking this promise in Jeremiah's day, God's word set in motion the day when the law covenant would become obsolete. Not obsolete in the sense that we now ignore it. I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. But, but obsolete in terms of, what co- of, of that covenant now governing our relationship with God. Okay, so the law made nothing perfect. No forgiveness under the law. The law also couldn't change the heart. The law wasn't permanent. Good night. Give us some good news. In God's plan... The law was always awaiting better promises. Okay, you might be saying, if that's how the old was lacking, tell me now how, how the new is so much better. What are these better promises? Well, there are four of them just in this, this passage. There are more, but four of them here. Uh, there's really three, and the last is kind of the basis for the rest, but we'll, we'll take it as four. The, the, the first promise is this, God's law written on the heart. God's law written on the heart. Look at verse 10. It says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. So, so earlier in Jeremiah's prophecy, God described the people's sin like this, their, their rebellion. He says, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, uh, with, with a point of diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their hearts. You see, the people so loved their idols that sin was was etched into the core of of their being such that you couldn't erase it. But here, notice that it's no longer sin etched into the heart. It's God's law. It's God's law. And he has to give them a new heart for that to happen. They needed a new mind, too, that that didn't stiff-arm the Lord's Word, but received it gladly as truth to build your life upon. And an incredible act of grace here. This is God acting on behalf of the people. God would replace the obstinate rebellion with obedient devotion. God's law would become so much a part of them that all that grieves God would also grieve His people and all that pleases God would also please His people. The old covenant made demands, but it never produced obedience. The new covenant effectively produces the obedience. How about that? That is good news. Promise number two. God's commitment to us in covenant bond. Verse 10 says, 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This, this language spans the whole of Scripture from the promise of Abraham all the way to the, the closing scene in, in Revelation. Uh, such language doesn't belong to everyone. Not everyone shares such a relationship with God, only the remnant, only the, the believers, only the faithful. It's, it's the language of mutual belonging, right? Returning, if we go back to the marriage analogy I mentioned earlier, it, this is God's I do to his people. And this is his people's I, the people's I do to their God, right? But unlike human marriages, which offer suffer from friction and, and separation and, 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 what, what, uh, and, and arguments and, and disunity, not unlike human marriages, nothing will separate God from His people. Okay? You see, to break the old covenant meant God's judgment. His faithfulness to the law, the law covenant, that, that faithfulness required Him to curse rebels. Verse 9 indicates they didn't continue in the first covenant, and so God showed no concern for them. You see, but things aren't like that under the new covenant. Why? (laughs) Because Jesus met all of the obligations under the first covenant for us. (laughs) And then he died to remove God's curse from us. So if God didn't spare His own Son, but, but He gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely and graciously give us all things? This is how much God has bound Himself to us by the blood of Jesus. For those united to Jesus, you, God, God is your God, and He will be with you forever. He is committed to you in covenant bond. Promise 3, everyone belonging to the new covenant knows God. That wasn't the case under the old covenant. In Israel, all, all, all one had to do under the old covenant was be born into Abraham's family. But being born in Israel didn't mean you had a heart for God. That's why God had to keep sending His messengers. He he appointed priests and prophets and and kings to keep telling the people, know the Lord, know the Lord, know the Lord. And yet many of them never listened. But that wouldn't be the case under the the new covenant, would it? Under the new covenant, the whole community would, would know the Lord. Look at verse 11. It says, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. So not just those special prophets and priests and kings who mediated God's revelation to the people and said, know the Lord. No, it says everybody knows him under the new covenant. Why? Because they come to God and they know God through the true priest, the true king, and the true prophet, Jesus Christ. No one enters the new covenant except those who believe in Jesus and those who believe in Jesus know God truly. Every one of them, from the least to the greatest, every one of them. And then we see the last promise, the the forgiveness of our sins. This promise undergirds all, all the rest. Verse 12, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Sin made Israel covenant breakers. Uh, Sin makes us covenant 
breakers. Sin separates us from God. Sin uh, invites God's judgment. And so sin is our biggest problem. Coronavirus isn't our biggest problem. The economy is not our biggest problem. Your marriage uh, breaches and, 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 and struggles aren't your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is your sin. And that's my biggest problem. And the law can't take it away. The the law made nothing perfect, but Jesus does, right? It it was Jesus who, who took the cup on the night He was betrayed with His disciples, and He said, drink of it, all of you, for this is My blood of the covenant, the new covenant, right, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Oh man, have you sinned against God? Is your conscience riddled with with guilt over things that you said this week? Over evils perhaps that you thought even this morning? Over things you've desired for years and haven't let go of? Do you have any idea how much your sin offends God's holiness and presumes on His grace? Do you have any sense of deep regret for the way you've treated others, whether recently or or in your past? Are there dark things that you haven't confessed? Dark secrets that leave you undone and hiding from the Lord and hiding from other people? Beloved, I want to say, hide yourself no more. Come to Jesus Christ and your sins will be forgiven. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Look to the cross of Jesus and see God's sacrifice for you. Because of Jesus' death, God will remember your sins no more. It is the promise of the new covenant, and God sealed that covenant with His Son's blood. Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. There is only one mediator between God and men. He is the man, Christ Jesus. And in coming to Jesus, though, I want you to realize something that you're not coming to a new moral code without any power. Christianity isn't just another set of moral teachings among others. No, beloved, true Christianity involves transformation of our our person at the most deepest level. God must write His law on us. Your heart. Christianity isn't about is, is Christianity is about God acting in Christ to change us to the very core of our being, or it's not Christianity. Right? And this shapes our approach to ethics, how we what we do in, in the world, right? People, and I mean Christians here, are rightly concerned with what's right and wrong, but sadly, It's often presented in a way, especially in public, it's presented in a way that if if someone knows what's right, if someone can just discover what's true, then they'll do it. Right? That our fundamental problem as humans is a lack of knowledge. And our passage says, -uh. (laughs) nuh-uh, no way. 
How many times did Israel know what was right? Wasn't it Israel that said to God, we will do all that you have commanded us. And then failure, 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 exile. Our problem as humans runs way deeper. The work God must do in us is deeper than just knowledge of right and wrong. He has to make us love it and crave it and want it, right? He has to, he has to make us treasure it and, and enjoy His Word and long for His character to be formed in us or we're not Christians. In short... You must be born again. God must regenerate your heart. Being right before God is what empowers us to doing right. Being right. You got to be right with God before doing right. And that takes a changed heart, and only God can do it. New covenant people love and treasure and adore God's law. I want to ask do you? Do you treasure this God's word? Has he written it upon your heart? This will affect the way we understand the we understand things like church membership. This will affect the way we do church. You know, some people ask uh, sometimes, you know, why we have these processes for membership and 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 church discipline. And one big answer to those questions is the new covenant right here. Right? Not only do we see here that everyone under the new covenant knows God, so the church is, is for regenerate people only, but also the people within that covenant must love God from the heart. Right? And if, and if they don't have such love for God and such love for God's Word, then who are we to keep saying they belong to the new covenant? It's at the height of deception to do that. And it ruins the church's witness. It's very sad when the people, when the, when the church of the new covenant looks much, looks too much like the Israel of the Old Covenant, people just kind of going through the motions of Christianity without a heart for God. May it not be said of us, beloved. Pray that our church remain a people who love God from a renewed heart. As much as possible, devote yourself to keeping regenerate church membership. Pay attention to the testimonies Walk with people. Know them truly. Practice accountability and corrective discipline when we're out of step with the new covenant and follow through with, the rest, with restoration for those who are truly repentant. So follow the new covenant vision for the church that we see here with, with new hearts and a, and a bond with God and, and knowing God and, and, and loving the forgiveness of, of sins here. Also, um, what chapter 8 does is it, it helps us pay attention to how the covenants develop in Scripture. 
Pay attention to the way covenants relate to one another in Scripture. God's revelation comes to us progressively in history. So there's, there's an important storyline, and, and one significant piece in that storyline is, is how the old covenant is then surpassed in the new. Like If you miss that development, right? if you miss that trajectory among the covenants, if you miss the nature of the old covenant and how, how it was lacking, if you miss the point for which God designed it as a pointer to Jesus, then it will cause you a host of problems and errors. Right? Isn't this what the apostles kept having to correct in the early churches? I mean, this is in your New Testament, right? Think of Acts 15 and Galatians in relation to circumcision and whether the Gentiles need to keep the law of Moses. Think of Colossians 2 in relation to festivals and new moons and, and Sabbath days, which he says were only a copy, right? They were only copies of the substance which belongs to Christ. Think of the false teachers misusing the law in 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's all over the New Testament. And it's still a problem today. Take the so-called prosperity gospel. One of the reasons that the prosperity gospel is false is that it seeks to apply to us the temporal blessings of the Old Covenant when those blessings were limited to a particular people for a particular era based on their obedience. Prosperity teachers hijack promises to Israel under the Old Covenant and they seek to apply them to you if you just have more faith, if you just have a little more obedience, if you just buy me another plane. The only way you discern that, though, is by relating the covenants properly. You've got to teach this to, to people, right? Or, or take a different kind of example, maybe one you've heard more often, right? How, how many times have you heard that, that Christians should give, a ten, should give 10% of their income to the church? Right? They call it a tithe. And yet what many people don't realize is that tithing was inextricably linked to the Levitical priesthood. We just read here that Jesus inaugurated a better covenant, a better priesthood. Right? His work made the Mosaic covenant obsolete. What are you going to say now? What we do say is this. Giving is motivated not by looking at another law for a minimum amount that I'm required to give, but by looking at Jesus' person and work for the maximum amount that He frees me to give. But the only way you'll discern this is by relating the covenants properly. Okay? 2 Corinthians 8-9 to is a great place to go for uh, giving in this, this respect. You'll, you'll see these things develop there. To be clear, this doesn't mean the law has no place for the Christian. It's, it's, it's still the Word of God. Paul says elsewhere that it's holy and, and righteous and good. It's not a matter of choosing which laws apply and, and which laws don't, but how, how those laws are fulfilled and brought to their truest intent in Christ and our union with Him. Right? So... Relating the covenants rightly will guard you from false teaching and, and these kinds of errors. And it will also inform your worship, right? You don't go to a sanctuary to, to worship, 
under the new covenant, you are God's sanctuary. <laughs> if, if you're a believer in Christ, you are the temple, right? You are where he chooses to manifest his glory on earth by the Spirit. You don't go to an earthly priest to, to have your sins absolved, right? Christ is your high priest in, in heaven, and he has taken them all away. So this, if, and there's others, he, he affects, this affects not just uh, our ethics, which we talked about earlier, it, it affects um, our worship, and it affects, uh, uh, it guards us from false teaching. You know what else it will do? Relating the covenants rightly will also help you witness to others. For real, it will help you witness to others. Uh, some of you may be familiar with the TV series West Wing. Well, it seemed like any time they had someone play the role of a Christian, the arguments that the Christian employed only reinforced our culture's perception of the law of Moses being this strange, outdated, irrelevant code for contemporary America. Go watch the series, and every time they got a Christian on there, he's making some ridiculous argument, and the other guy just just uh, kind of wipes wipes the floor with him. Right, the, the, the Christian character would would put up some argument against homosexuality and quote Leviticus for support, and then another character would would dismiss that by quoting another text from the law about men not shaving parts of their head or people not wearing mixed linen. And I'm on the other side of the screen, going, "You both don't get it." <laughs> The law of Moses not only reveals God's character, yeah, but it bears witness to Jesus and our need for a sacrifice. Relating the covenants properly will help you witness to your neighbors. It will help them understand the Bible on its own terms instead of a mere support for someone's political positions. And it will help you then point them to Jesus who can forgive and change them from within and who can make them new and lovers of God's law. So want they, they want to find it. They want to devour this book and see how they relate to God and the way they should live in the world and in society. And then lastly, I want, I want you to take heart that God grants what He also commands in the New Covenant. He grants what he also commands in the new covenant. You see, the problem with the old covenant is that it could never produce the obedience it requires. The new covenant actually produces the obedience it requires. God writes his law upon our hearts. And that, my friends, is true freedom. That is some massive assurance as well for the Christian, because how often do you read your Bible and, 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 you, and you think, man, that's a lot required of me right now. How often do you hear a sermon on, on Sunday and think, man, God requires all of me right now and all the energy I have to His kingdom. I feel like I barely made it yesterday. What's going to keep me going here? And I'm going to tell you, Jesus is. <laughs> he promised that to you in the new covenant. The covenant He inaugurates creates in you everything that you need to follow Him day by day and abide in His will. Right? And that doesn't mean you're passive, right? Like, oh, I'm just going to wait until He does this. No, like, you have a heart for God now. 
Your heart loves His Word. Your heart wants to obey Him. Right? And, it's, and it's, this is grace. You will want to serve Him. The grace of the new covenant is why you can have confidence that you will make it to the end. So don't fret, Christian, about whether your faith is going to last or, or not. In union with Christ, it will last. He will keep you to the end until that day comes, as it says in Revelation 21.3, when we will dwell with God and He with us, and God will be our God, and we will be His people. How are we going to make it there? This new covenant promise right here that's sealed with the blood of Jesus and applied to you by His Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the new covenant. Thank you for your grace towards us in that covenant. Thank you for the assurance that it brings. And this to think that Jesus is our guarantee that we will make it to the end for all that he's done for us, Lord. We are grateful this morning. Amen.